There was a fascinating scene that I captured on my ring camera. A coyote came into the side yard and was chasing our neighbor's cat. It's probably the most shocking thing I've seen on the cameras so far. It made me wonder whether I do want the camera back there. Because now you're going to be all stressed out anytime your cat goes out. What are the healthcare costs of that that now you're more anxious? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Let's ask my Amazon Halo band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see if it's gone up in the last couple of days. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We're in the studio. First time in many, many years, it seems, right? Yeah, I got my booster last week, so I'm feeling bulletproof here. How are you doing? No booster yet, but I feel bulletproof because I got the Moderna. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we report each day on what's happening around us in tech, science, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we talk about some of the biggest and most interesting stories in the news. Coming up this week, John, I've got a tech crank segment, a new segment called Tech Crank. I love just throwing in these random new segments. That's great. In fact, I think I can just be the tech crank <laughs> anyway, based on some of the things I want to talk about. Excellent. That's perfect. So that's coming up later on. But first, let's talk about Zillow, iBuying, and the implosion of the algorithm, John, you covered this story. In fact, you've been covering this story effectively for the better part of a decade or more. Basically since they were founded. That's right. Zillow was started quite a while ago, more than a decade ago in Seattle. This latest story, though, for folks who have not followed it, is really the implosion of what was to be their big growth engine. Yeah, really. Uh, they went big, even though for years they said they were never going to insert themselves into the real estate transaction. About three years ago, they made a big pivot in their business, and they started into the realm of what's called iBuying, essentially flipping homes. And this was a surprise at the time because, as I mentioned, for many years, they said they were never going to go down this path. They started down the path, and as we saw here in the last couple of weeks, they are dramatically pulling out of the business, which is sending some shocks through the industry. And really gets into this interesting idea. In fact, there are a lot of different angles here that are interesting to explore. One of them is, is Zillow pulling out of the business reflective of what's going to happen to these other iBuyers? So OfferPad, Door, Redfin. And the answer, at least on Wall Street, is maybe not because those companies have seemed to have whether this or are moving through with their own iBuying plans and seem to be doing okay. But Zillow has basically just pulled the cord completely on it and said, we're getting out of the business. They have to sell like 17,000 houses here in the, in the coming quarters because they had 7,000 they owned roughly and another 8,000 in, in the works in terms of their ownership. So that's a lot of houses to unload. So the two subplots here are, number one, Rich Barton, the CEO of Zillow and one of the original co-founders who came back to start this business effectively inside Zillow by expanding into iBuying when he succeeded Spencer Raskoff as the CEO a couple True, of years but ago. But I believe Spencer Raskoff was one of the leaders who started to push them oh, into really? iBuying before Rich Barton took it over. Okay. So, so. That's, that's subplot number one. Subplot number two is essentially the effectiveness of the algorithms that Zillow was using because what they did was they tried to figure out the price of these homes and the value such that they could purchase homes that they knew they could turn around and flip for a profit. Right. And I don't know. 
Anytime I hear of anybody saying they can predict financial outcomes, I mean, it's like, can people predict the stock market? Can people predict where houses are going to go? I mean, historically, at least, the answer is no. You can't predict this stuff. Otherwise, you'd have people that just absolutely manipulate and dominate markets. The fact being, and I think Rich Barton, the CEO of Zillow Group, got into this, he mentioned in his in his conference call these black swan events, these things that are just absolutely unpredictable that are going to throw markets into turmoil. And I think that is what's happening in this market is that there's just too many variables that you're never actually going to be able to predict what's going to happen in any market. Now, maybe the AI algorithms eventually will get that good that you can do it. But I think they've been overpromised in terms of what their power is and what they can do. Do you think that Rich Barton is simply acknowledging reality before these other companies that you mentioned, Open Door, Redfin, and others? Or is he simply not in the same league as they are in terms of Zillow's ability to get into this market and accurately figure out what the homes are going to be sold for? I think the jury's out. I mean, I think we'll see in the next few years whether these companies can actually make a real profit and weather storms that might be coming in the real estate market that no one can foresee. Maybe they are good enough. Maybe the algorithms will predict that. I was reading about OfferPad and they say their algorithms are good enough that they can predict if there's a shortage, let's say, on windows in a certain geography that they operate in so that they then know that maybe they can't turn a house as quickly because they can't get their suppliers in there to flip the house. And maybe all that stuff will work. I think what Rich Barton is saying is like, yeah, that might work and you can tune your algorithms to predict that, but maybe your algorithms aren't going to predict that a comet's going to land in, you know, Phoenix and like take out 90% of your inventory. I don't know. You know, and so at the end of the day, I think what Rich Barton was saying was that we could tune the algorithm, we could probably get a little bit more comfortable with this and maybe make it work, but it's just way too risky and too risky of a bet to put on this company that has this other part of its business that is very profitable and is growing relatively well. And I get that. You know, I think it seems risky, doesn't it? I mean, we've we've talked about this on the podcast. When when I started doing the original stories last week on this topic, I know we've talked about this on the podcast. And I started going back and I was like, when did we talk about this? Because I know we have always we've always said, like, this is a weird bet that they're doing. Doesn't it seem super risky to go do this and go buy up all these homes and own these homes? It just seems like a risky thing to do. Yes, but think about it from the seller's side in particular, the whole appeal of being able to just basically push a button and be done with your home for a reasonable return because Zillow is taking it off your hands. To me, that's pretty appealing. And it makes me wonder if perhaps the algorithm wasn't wrong so much on the sell side as it was on the buy side. In other words, could Zillow have gone to these sellers and said, hey, we're actually going to lowball you even more for the price of convenience than we already were. Well, that's essentially what these models are built on is, is the convenience factor that like you can sell your house. You don't have to worry about it. They'll take it over. They'll stage it. They'll get it fixed up and they'll turn it. And you're willing to take a little bit of a haircut on your price because it's convenient. 
to do so. Now, what's interesting, Glenn Coleman, the CEO of Redfin, came out. He was saying that they are – and they're pushing still heavily into iBuying. But his point was that they want to combine both the algorithm, the AI component of this with some decent fact-checking from humans. So they're trying to combine the human element with the AI element. And maybe that's the model that works and maybe that's – he says that's a more cautious approach than just relying on this algorithm to figure it out. So I don't know. I mean it's very interesting to watch. It's interesting to see Zillow, which was the absolute leader in real estate, go out heavy into this eye-buying arena and then retreat very quickly. I'm fascinated to see how it's going to play out in the coming months and years because the story's not over and there's a chance that some of these – other players like Open Door and OfferPad and Redfin just continue to take market share and can grow substantial businesses. On the flip side, there's an equal chance that all those folks are going to fall on their face as as maybe Rich Barton and the Zillow team think is going to happen. When I look at this, I think about it in the big picture of technology and automation and the reliance not only on algorithms but just on programs that are effectively replacing human judgment and human attention. And I think we've also seen this with Amazon and some reporting that the New York Times and others have done about their ability to keep up with the rapid growth of their workforce using paid leave systems that don't really understand when somebody's gone or when their pay has been cut and their pay should be restored. It seems like in all of these places, the common element is an over-reliance on technology to scale and an underappreciation for the value of human attention and judgment. And it makes me wonder what else is out there that well, is going to implode. Yeah. And is Look this at effectively, Facebook. is it an AI bubble? Facebook is, Facebook is like, and I talk about a news event we've been, been tracking here for the last several months that's right at the heart of that. This is at the center of it. Facebook's algorithm is not maybe directing content in a way to people or it's so highly affected of directing content to people that it's bad, that it's not working well and it's causing problems in society. I mean that's essentially what the issue is. Um, I think you see it with self-driving cars and as you said, you see it with sys- internal systems like at Amazon. You know, We've talked on the podcast in the past about my biggest fear at Amazon is not some competitor is going to come up, come around and maybe knock it off its stoop. It's that it's going to implode. And I think this is an example of just growing at the rate that you are. And then you have employees there that are expecting a paycheck and they don't even get paid because their systems are so broken. Because the company is so entrepreneurial, it seems like it's been kind of patched together. I don't know. I just I'm amazed that it continues to operate at the level it does. And that there aren't more stories like this that you cited in the New York from the New York Times where they are just not keeping up. It seems unrealistic that you can grow like that and keep up with your systems and continue to be innovative and creative. It just doesn't usually work that way. And you add into this mix the labor shortage, the supply chain issues, and it just adds to the complication at a time when the stakes are especially high. Coming out of the pandemic, all these companies trying to stay on their feet. And to me, the big question is, can Amazon continue to grow at the pace that they have? We talked about this a couple weeks ago where they said that for the first time, the bottleneck in their distribution centers and in their fulfillment centers were not 
issues of capacity and real estate. It was labor. They were not able to get workers in the right place at the right time to be able to deliver packages and process packages in a timely manner. And that to me speaks to a real reckoning here and a question of whether this can continue. Well, it, it speaks to my theory too of the implosion. That is not an external threat. It's an internal threat to Amazon. And to that point of their warning and earnings of what was coming because of these labor shortages, you know who did have a really great quarter and who has seemed to master this to some degree and they are projecting, you know, really strong on-time delivery? It's your former employer. Oh, yeah. UPS. UPS. Yeah. Now, and, and so there was an interesting story in Bloomberg looking at this because the point was because they are a unionized shop and they have very reliable pension systems and employment and payment and that they're not facing all this churn in their workforce like Amazon. And the Bloomberg story contrasted largely with FedEx, which is a bit more of the operator model versus a unionized model. Amazon, though, in its own delivery network has replicated the FedEx ground model. Right. And that was an interesting part of the Bloomberg story where FedEx has essentially bifurcated its deliveries between overnight and ground and, and it employs people directly overnight, but it works through this network for FedEx ground deliveries. And Amazon, through its delivery service partners program, does the same thing where it's contracting with purpose-built companies that then themselves employ the drivers, reducing the liability for Amazon, but also reducing Amazon's control and really making it more difficult for the company to make fine-tuned changes that could address some of these logistics issues. It's an interesting economic question. Which yeah. model is better? Is it better just to pay really high wages, great pension? I mean, it's kind of the old school style of thinking when you think of of the rise of yeah. the middle class in this in this country in the 50s and 60s and um that was kind of how the country was built was through that model and now we have this like kind of outsourced and you're going on the cheap and you've got the um the gig economy and you're not really paying people they're not really getting benefits and yeah, you can get a lot more people quicker, but then you have the great resignation and now no one wants to work anywhere. And they're, I, I don't know, it's going to be interesting. There's almost two models at war here. And I don't know which way it's going to play out, frankly, because this labor shortage is a real deal. And if a UPS model of pension and healthcare and solid pay pays out and you can hold your workforce and they're happy and content. That seems like it would be a smart bet to follow that path. I do want to mention calling UPS my former employer is a bit of a stretch. That, yes, I, I, I know. There, <laughs> I worked there part-time in college on the preload shift, which will be a phrase that UPS old-timers will appreciate in the early mornings. But I was a Teamster. Even to work part-time, I was a member of the Teamsters union. And that makes me think about Amazon's entire union battle and the – quest to really strike down these efforts to unionize inside their warehouses. And you know what it really reminds me of is the religion that Microsoft had against open source and Linux back in the day. I wonder if we'll see enough benefits from unionization and this traditional workforce model from folks like UPS that Amazon, perhaps under a future CEO, someday might look to unions in the same way that Microsoft looks to open source today. That's super interesting to think about it in that way. I, I think that's an interesting theory. 
The problem with this theory is that eventually what Amazon wants to do with all these people working in those fulfillment centers is replace them with robots, right. which if you have a union in there, it's going to be harder to do that. Absolutely. The automation discussion, the AI and automation discussion has become so different in just the last six months because in the past it was, they're taking away our jobs. And now it's, holy crap, we've got to fill these vacancies essentially that humans can't and create this productivity that the labor force is apparently not up to post-pandemic. I don't know. This is such an interesting time to live in right now through all of these things. And I think there are real questions in all of these stories about the abilities of technology, the capability of technology to create the future that we thought was possible even two years ago. I think the pandemic has exposed some real pitfalls here. I agree. I agree. And I think you see an overpromise of AI and algorithms to solve problems. Who can we short in the stock market? Well, that would essentially be everybody. <laughs> I mean, it would be every every trillion dollar yeah. company out there, which is, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Facebook's not a trillion anymore. Sorry for them. Meta. 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 <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. All right. We referenced a number of different stories as we were talking, and we'll link to those from the show notes. Coming up, I want to talk a little bit about ring cameras and what I saw in my side yard this past week. You're listening to GeekWire. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. John, do you use like cameras in your house or outside your house or ring doorbell or I anything? I do not. I do not. Make make the sales job I, to me know, that I need it. Honestly, I'm sort of mixed on it. it. It's something we have in our backyard because we give our cats free reign. We use a cat door with an automated reader that can read the microchip and so can only let them in. So they go in and out when they want. So we want to know sort of what goes on yeah. at night. I don't think out. I actually want to know what's going on. You know, <laughs> you know, I mean, like them I almost out of witnessed, sight, out of mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I bring it up in part because I almost witnessed a bloodbath in my side yard. We have a camera in that area because it's a place where our cats pop out into what we call our catio, and we like to see what they're doing there. And in the early morning hours of this past Monday, there was a bona fide coyote, a coyote, as they would say, where I grew up, that came into the side yard and was chasing our neighbor's cat, 11-year-old It's intense. Cat. I love the video. And we'll link to that from the show notes, obviously. It was shocking. It's probably the most shocking thing I've seen on the cameras so far. And we've seen raccoons and everything else, but it was terrifying. This thing, I would not want to encounter this coyote. It was pretty big. <laughs> it was big. It was, yeah. it was like, it was tall. It was yeah. tall and lean. And I was really surprised it didn't jump over our fence. But it strikes me just that, this surveillance society that we're in. Yeah. 
Coyotes don't even have privacy anymore. <laughs> and uh, to your point, John, it made me wonder whether I do want the camera back there. I'd almost rather be in blissful ignorance on this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because now you're going to be all stressed out anytime your cat goes out. Yeah, maybe. Last night, for example, I was watching very closely to see whether the cats were in the house. And fortunately, it is a little cooler right now, so they tend not to spend as much time so, out there. Yeah. What are the healthcare costs of that that now you're more anxious? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Let's ask my Amazon Halo band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See if it's but gone up in the last I'm couple sure, days. I'm sure there's lots of <laughs> different variables playing into that one. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And I don't know. I'm stretching for a big picture takeaway here. And the bottom line is it was a terrifying video that was almost a horror movie. <laughs> well... Yes. I, as somebody who has a decent sized dog and has never been a cat person, yep. it was interesting to watch. I'm more on kind of the coyote side of the fence on this one versus the cat side. I don't want your neighbor to lose their cat. No. But, you know. And it was an older cat too. I didn't put that in the it story. Got it, was out of the, it was scraping its nails to get up that fence and over that door as quickly as it could. Yes. What do you think would happen if Hugo, your dog- encountered a coyote. I've thought about that because I let him out because now he's getting up so early in the morning because the daylight savings crap. So now he's getting up at like 3.30 in the morning and wants breakfast. And so another reason why we need to switch off this daylight savings thing because I let him out there at that time. You know, I don't think they would, I mean, probably lose if they started battling, of course, but- They'd probably run the other way. But I think they hopefully would scare him off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on this whole automation thing with our cats because I hate paying somebody to come in and feed the cats when we're gone for like three, four days. And I've made plenty of blunders along the way. And one of my worst was a couple of years ago when I decided that I would leave the automated cat food feeder outside. Oh, my God. And I overfed the cats remotely through the app. <laughs> and there were raccoons that, of course, decided to swarm Early in the morning, I was in Florida yelling into my Ring app to try and scare him away through the microphone on the camera. <laughs> it's just a complete technology and, and actual human fail in that case. But I, I will say there is a lot of tech out there that enables you to really automate a lot of this stuff. I've since moved that feeder inside and we've got the microchip door and I actually You got think a smart home, baby. A, a smart pet home, perhaps. <laughs> so, all right. Well, again, I'll link to that video. It's probably more just of a novelty than a, than a big takeaway for tech, but pretty cool to see a coyote in the wilds of Ballard. All right. Coming up, I do want to complain a little bit. So it's our tech- I, I do too. <laughs> Good. It's our tech crank segment. That's coming up next. All right. Welcome back. It is time for a new segment and we're trying out all these different new segments. We'll see if this one sticks and we'll get a jingle for it later on. But this one resurfaces a theme that we've had over the years. We've always thought about having a tech crank column, often delving into the minutia. So this is very much- I can't wait. I don't right. even, I don't know what you're going to talk about either. So I'm excited. So Microsoft this past week unveiled a new Surface laptop, the Surface Laptop SE. And they said in their blog post the following, built to bring Windows 11 SE to life, that's their operating system tuned for education, Surface Laptop SE is our most affordable Surface PC ever at $249. Awesome. So I went in and I looked at the actual product detail page. John, that statement was 
a lie. A lie. It's $849? No, it was not $849. It's $249.99. Okay, so what? So my issue is I completely- Just say it's $250? Yes. Yes. My fundamental issue here is you're already pushing the envelope as a retailer by doing the whole one penny below the price, the psychological trick. It's age old. I realize yeah. it's, it's you know, been they, around forever. You know, they've no, got, they've got 30 people studying this okay. on why it should be 249 versus 250 That part is fine. But especially for a product that is aimed at education, do the math correctly. 249 dollars 99 does not round down to $249. It rounds up to $250. And you know what ended up happening was other reporters, some of them, did not actually look at the product detail page, so they cited the $249. And to me, the right thing to do is to say $250. And if you're going to go down that slippery slope, yeah, $249 is close to $250. So is $225. So is $200. Why don't you just put $200 in there? That's close. (laughs) It's close. It's in the ballpark. How's that for my crank? I think it's good. I'm glad you're fired up about this. But seriously, I mean, where do you draw the line? And the whole issue of fake news, what's real, what's not, it's in these gray areas where you start to slip. Yeah, I, I, I you, you have I a hard time getting. I, I can tell too, from your expression. I, I'm not that fired up about it. I don't think it's the biggest controversy I've seen. I sent it to the Microsoft people and said, "Take note." Yeah, just say two fifty. Just say two fifty. And it's it's. I don't like all. Aren't aren't consumers smart enough to like kind of figure this out? In a world where facts are fudged and people base their opinions on realities that may or not may not be based in fact, the little things matter. Come on, Microsoft. You are better than this. Okay. All right. Wow, Todd. Is the is the rant over? End rant. End rant. Okay. <laughs> I don't really have as an impassioned an argument. Okay. And I didn't come in here to this segment thinking I was going to have a tech crank. Okay. But, but this does tie into some news. I mean, my rant. Okay. Let's hear ties it. into some news. There was a pretty big IPO this week. You know which one it was? Rivian. Right. Rivian went public, the electrical vehicle maker. So you look through their financial documents. They are supposed to spell out all the risk factors. They spell out their financials. If you look through their S1 document, what category do you think is missing? Whoa. Financial category. In the financials? Yeah. What do you think is missing? Oh, boy. Um, Wow. Profit. I don't know. Well, <laughs> well net loss is on net there. Net loss Certain, is in there. Net loss. You either have profit or net loss. Right, net loss is in line. there. I'm saying bottom yeah. line. Net loss in there. Revenue. What? Revenue. You know why? Guess how much revenue they have? Zero. Zero. Okay. This is my rant. Okay. Here so you have it's a not company. not that they're not disclosing it that's your rant. It's the fact that they don't have it. Well, and they're going public. I don't even think it was a line item from what I could find. Because before the podcast, I was like, I'm going to quiz Todd on their exact amount of revenue that they had in the third quarter. And I it was wasn't like in net sales not, or something nothing, like that. Nothing, nothing. And then I looked at I think it was a Bloomberg story and it said they had less than 1 million in revenue in the third quarter and I was like, "Well, what was it? Like 400,000 or and I couldn't find it in the document. Maybe our great listeners out there will be able to actually find you did a, what like their a control revenue F. Was. I did a control F. I was searching for revenue. Now they talk a lot about revenue in there, but in terms of finding what their revenue was, I had a hard time locating what it was. Regardless, 
it's less than a million. It might be zero. And they have truly not generated any product revenue to date. So this is my bigger picture. Why is this company going public? This company went public. And no, I, I, any, they can go public. That's fine. But they've got a $100 billion market value. They're more valuable than Ford and General Motors. And they have zero revenue at this point. That's insane. That is crazy. That's insane. I mean, now granted, they've got a lot of orders coming in, including from Amazon, which is what, ordering 100,000 Rivian vehicles. So they've got future revenue baked in. But it seems like this is a bit of a complex business, maybe building an entirely new electrical vehicle, and yet they've generated almost no revenue. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I got to say, that's a more substantive rant than mine. Well, it's in the same ballpark. You don't like that it's 249 versus 250, and I don't like that it's essentially zero revenue for a company that's worth $100 billion. There's a pretty big spread there, Todd. When you think about <laughs> zero revenue to $100 billion market value, and you're upset about 249 versus 249.99 cents. I mean – Yes. I don't know. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, this is good. I, I think maybe this segment could have some legs. I'll start looking into the possibility of a jingle. It will sound a little angry. <laughs> but that's all I got. You got anything else you want to chat about? I don't think so. Okay. Stay safe out there on the streets of Seattle yes. with these coyotes running around. Absolutely. Social yeah. distance from those coyotes for yeah. sure. They can be aggressive. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. And please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. I want to do a shout out to Jane Park, the guest on our most recent show. Great conversation. Got great feedback from the people who listened to that one. And it was really neat to see her up there with her team. From Athena Consumer Acquisition Corp, ringing the bell on the New York Stock Exchange as the first Korean-American woman to take a company public in that stock exchange. I kind of got chills watching it. It was really cool. Great story. That is in the podcast feed immediately prior to this episode. Our podcast is produced by Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. Thanks for listening to GeekWire.